Good evening and welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm David Bowes. I am the very longtime executive vice president of the Cato Institute. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the fourth presentation in the Joseph K. McLaughlin Lecture Series. Um, this series recognizes uh, Dr. McLaughlin's support for Cato, his scientific accomplishments, and the broad range of his intellectual interests. And the diverse speakers in this series have reflected his broad interests in science, technology, economics, and more. Um, we appreciate uh, the support and the presence of uh, uh, Joe's wife, Jean Rosenthal, and his daughter, Allison, and her husband. And what better place for a broad range of important topics than the Hayek Auditorium, which is named for a scholar who wrote books on economics, political theory, law, psychology, and the methodology of the social sciences. And of course, Hayek wrote a great deal about socialism and the effort to eliminate markets and private property, which today's McLaughlin lecturer has devoted his career to studying. The 101 years ago this week, Lenin led the Bolshevik Revolution that ushered in the era of communism in Russia and much of the world. Uh, as it happens, today is All Saints Day, and tomorrow morning it will be All Souls Day when Christians commemorate the souls of those who departed, which is an unfortunately appropriate time to reflect on the record of communism. No one knows that record better than our speaker today. Stephen Kotkin is the John P. Birkeland 52 a professor in History and International Affairs at Princeton University. For 13 years, he directed Princeton's program in Russian and Eurasian studies. He's the author of numerous books, including two on the collapse of communism. He is best known for his current project, a three-volume biography of Joseph Stalin. Two volumes have appeared so far, the first on Stalin's rise to power, the second focused on his collectivization terrorization and geopolitics just before the outbreak of World War II. Um, the book is a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and just today the Council on Foreign Relations announced that Stalin Waiting for Hitler had been awarded its annual prize for the best book informing our understanding of the world and international affairs. The New York Times called the books masterly and monumental and said they will surely stand for years to come as a seminal account. The historian John Lewis Gaddis calls them the contemporary history books he most admires and says that they made him repeatedly reconsider not whether Joseph Stalin was a monster, but just what kind of monster he was. The Wall Street Journal reviews all the literature on Stalin, well, I should probably say much of the literature on Stalin, and says only Mr. Kotkin's book approaches the highest standard of scholarly rigor and general interest readability. At Cato, we defend liberalism against illiberal systems from across the political spectrum. In the 1930s, liberalism faltered as communists bat communists battled fascists for supremacy. Today, as we see a resurgence of authoritarian factions and illiberal movements on both right and left, it's our job to ensure that liberalism this time is more resilient. Please welcome our Joseph K. McLaughlin lecturer and incisive analyst of totalitarianism, Stephen Kotkin. Thank you for the honor of the invitation and for that wonderful introduction. I'm sorry you didn't keep going. It was so good. <laughs> I would really like to be able to live up to that introduction. Um, so uh, it's very nice to be, this is my first time in this building. It's very nice to be in a group that understands and values and defends liberty. As you know, there are many enemies of liberty and even worse, there are people uh, willing to give it away. So it's nice to keep remembering the fight that produced it and that is necessary to keep it. So that's going to be one of the principal themes of my lecture. So. 
I took this picture myself. Uh, that's uh, President Vladimir Putin uh, riding the American Eagle, uh, which is pretty much our understanding of Russia today here in the United States. This is another important picture. You'll, you'll recognize the great sportsman, uh, Leonid Brezhnev, who was the uh, leader of the Soviet Union for 18 years uh, during the sort of late Soviet period. And so these are our images of Russia, or this passes for a debate about Russia today in the US. This image, which is the predominant one about Russia now, and this image, which is sort of our understanding of that Soviet phenomenon about how it decayed, it degraded, it got flabby, it wasn't really a big threat anymore. And uh, so somehow now it's a really big threat, uh, but towards the end, the Soviet Union wasn't a big threat. Well, as you know, uh, Leonid Brezhnev had um, one-third the size of the U.S. economy at peak. And this guy has about one-thirteenth, depending how you measure. It's not easy to measure. Do you use uh, purchasing power parity? Do you use absolute GDP? How do you measure Soviet economy? They didn't have real prices. These are approximations. But nonetheless, uh, about one-thirteenth and about one-third American economy. Double the population that this guy has. Uh, 40,000 nuclear weapons, uh, 40,000 uh, tons of chemical weapons, and of course the biological weapons program that the CIA uh, didn't really know about fully until after the Soviet Union collapsed. So the Soviet Union was a massive, massively armed state, 5.3 million men under arm, 600,000 troops in Eastern Europe, 400,000 troops in East Germany alone. And so we wouldn't want to mistake the size of the threat that each of these posed in their day. This is the rest of the policy debate that we have currently in the US. First, that there's this Russian president riding the American Eagle. Then there was this flabby, degrading, declining Soviet Union. Certainly nothing compared to the current Russian offensive. And then there's this bizarre admiration that's going on that we're, we seem to need an investigation of to get to the bottom of when it's right there in front of our face. So sadly, this is what I understand to be the current policy debate in the US about Russia. I get many invitations to talk about policy, and those three slides with the assumptions built into them are, account for the majority of the questions that I usually get uh, from the audiences. And these are people who pay a close attention to foreign affairs. Okay. So I don't think that this is correct. Okay. Now, we're now at the point in the lecture where I'm supposed to pivot. And I'm supposed to tell you that there's this really deep problem, threat to freedom, Soviet Union, Russia, and connect Stalin to Putin. Uh, because that's the only way you can talk about a Stalin book to an educated audience is to connect it to the current affairs. And also, you're looking to get that booking on MSNBC. And they're not going to book you on MSNBC, otherwise known as Red Army TV. Unless, of course, you can connect the history to the present somehow. So as I say, this would be the point in a lecture where I would pivot. Am I supposed to stand up here? I'm sorry, I left the cage. Did I frighten anybody? It's one of those things that'll be on the news later that the, the animal escaped from the zoo and they needed the tranquilizer gun. I'm not very good at giving lectures. I never really figured this out. So I pace. This guy also paced, as you know. He paced because his bones hurt, his joints hurt. He had uh, all sorts of uh, arthritic and, uh, and other ailments. I pace because I'm trying to figure out what to say. OK. So, so uh, this is where I'm supposed to pivot now and, and connect Stalin to Putin and the Soviet Union to Russia in a more serious way based upon history. 
The problem is, is that Stalin and Lenin together killed 18 to 20 million people. Most of it was Stalin. And so the idea that there's something close between these two regimes, you have to be very careful because the scale of the horrors is just off the charts under communism, as David referred to in his introduction. And as bad as the current regime is, and let's be honest, the current regime in Russia is a gangster regime. As bad as it is, it's just not comparable to this kind of stuff. Stalin was the master of the smear, uh, but he controlled the public sphere fully. And so uh, you couldn't defend yourself against the smear. Uh, Putin's regime is good at the smear, but is not really on the same level. So what are we going to do instead? Right? You can see the slyness in both of the, the pictures. Let's also talk a little bit now as a preface about uh, the information wars and Russia's interference in our democracy, just as by way of background. So in the 1990s, there was a very big Russian money laundering scandal. And a lot of money, which was stolen inside Russia, was laundered outside. And we got all worked up about this Russian money laundering scandal. Well, was it a Russian money laundering scandal? It was actually the Bank of New York that laundered the money. Now, the Bank of New York denied that they were involved in these operations. They've never admitted guilt. To the extent that they were brought to court, they paid only court fees rather than a, a significant settlement. But my proposition to you is that uh, the Russian money laundering was the Western financial system laundering Russian money. And so imagine that Vladimir Putin was sitting around uh, working in the FSB, and he had a great idea. He decided to find a kid at Harvard in a dorm room, make the kid not finish Harvard, but instead start a business, have this business grow and connect the whole world together, and then use this person, use this instrument, use this business, which later would become world famous as Facebook, in order to overturn democracies in the world. And it was a brilliant idea that he had to take this kid at Harvard and to build up this system, and it worked. My point is simply that the Russian information wars are, again, an American problem. Just like the Bank of New York uh, accusations, charges of money laundering of Russian money, the Russians stole the money, and today, and the Bank of New York was accused of laundering it, but without the Western financial system, the Russians really couldn't have done anything. So without the ecosystem that we have created, and we are the issue, it's our technology. So the Putin information wars are not really Putin information wars, they're American information wars, and we have to solve this problem. His nasty behavior has further indicated to us that we have a problem. So, all right. Have you been to the Russian uh, high-tech industry? I've been there. It's in Tel Aviv. And the reason it's in Tel Aviv is because the Russians don't have a civilian high-tech industry. They do nothing but hemorrhage intellectual capital. Their intellectual capital is everywhere but Russia. It's sitting right here in this room. And their high-tech industry is in Israel. So once again, is it Putin's information wars? He doesn't have a civilian high-tech industry. He's got some military uh, high-tech, but nothing compared to what the United States has and that he's using. So in understanding the Russian phenomenon and the challenges that it presents, a lot of it has to do with our institutions, our technology, our behavior, our governance, our lack of governance, et cetera. So, okay. Now, if you want to talk about the specifics of what's going on in Russia, it's very depressing. All right, here they are, taking over the world on cable television. 
By the way, have you noticed that uh, um, the, the Democrats have their Cold War, which is with Russia, but the Republicans have their own Cold War, which is with China? And that each side prefers its own Cold War, so the Democrats prefer to talk about the Russia threat, and now the Republicans prefer to talk about the Chinese threat. Back in the actual Cold War, they shared. There was one Cold War, it was the Soviet Union, and they each had a piece of it. Now they've got their own. So the Russian threat, which seems to loom very large, is not as big on the Republican side as now the Chinese threat is becoming. Okay. So if you think about what's going on in Russia, the, the degradation of the uh, human capital, the continued lack of diversity of the economy, the demographic situation, all the things that you and other experts know about, right? there's no long-term pattern of modernization, of investing in social capital and people, of building infrastructure, of gaining the kinds of necessary structural uh, um, attributes that sustain power over the long term. There's tremendous spoilation, and there's asymmetric taking advantage of those things that we do wrong or don't, do, uh, or should do better. But there is no uh, aggrandizement of Russian power over the long term. Russia's grand strategy is hang on, cause trouble, and when the West collapses, we'll be okay. In other words, relative to the West, Russia's terrible. So if the West collapses, Russia's okay. China, at this point, will also have to collapse for them, which is something they didn't plan on 15 or 20 years ago. So we need to be clearer about the nature of the Russian threat, because as you know, the bigger threats get, the bigger certain things around threats also get. So as to repeat, it's a gangster regime, but it is not an existential threat, and it can be dealt with in a way that doesn't require 24-7 attention or massive investments in the kinds of things that we did during the Cold War. Okay. So this is, uh, if you've been to the White House recently, that's the White House now. And you can see it's been rebranded at the top. It says Trump now. So we focus quite a bit, obviously, on the Circus Act that we have uh, here in town. And there's something to that. Obviously, it's the business model for the media now on both sides uh, to have the Trump. It's also, as Anders Oslin and I were talking before, and it's our business model, because the more chaos or seeming chaos or apparent chaos, the more we get invited to give lectures about the chaos. But this is another thing the lecture is not going to be about right now. Let me just see if, if we're done yet. So I, I'm, I'm getting to the lecture itself. I know you've been waiting patiently. And I know this hasn't been very good, but the lecture is now coming. So this is a roundabout way of saying that we need to reorient our thinking a little bit because we're kind of caught up in a certain day-to-day um, uh, entertainment, infotainment complex, uh, et cetera. Okay, so what, what do I see as the main things that we should understand? Where should, what should this lecture be about? That's where we are now. I know I'm not allowed off the stage, and I don't have to go off the stage now because usually I go off the stage in order to check on the sales of the J. Crew sweatpants and the Facebook updating the updating of the profiles on Facebook and the other things that happened during my lectures. But I see no laptops open right now during this lecture. So there's actually no reason for me to leave the stage. You think I'm kidding? You think anything I've said has been in jest? It's all been serious. So this is the thing. We have a new version of authoritarianism and that's the thing to understand. And it goes something like this. There are four attributes to modern authoritarianism. The definition of modern authoritarianism is the rule of the few in the name of the many. In the old days, we had the rule of the few in the name of the few. That was aristocratic rule or various other versions. Now we have the rule of the few in the name of the many. That's modern authoritarianism. And the key thing about modern authoritarianism is the absence of serious limits on executive power. 
So there are four attributes to this. One is you have to have a big repressive apparatus. You got to be able to repress. Physically repress, information repress, a big repressive apparatus. You can't have too efficient a repressive apparatus because then you could get in trouble because they could repress you. So you need a big repressive apparatus for your domestic population, but it has to be subdivided into many different competing rival organizations, and it has to be ipso facto inefficient. If it's too efficient, right, you end up being on the receiving end of the efficiency of the repressive apparatus as the ruling group or the ruler. So we see you need this. This is a precondition, repressive app. You give me a repressive apparatus, I can get a lot of things done. The problem is, is that it's not enough. You need a second piece. I'm going to give you four. And the second piece is this. The second piece is cash flow. Cash flow is really critical for an authoritarian regime. Why? We have this silly understanding. Now, it's true, it's only in academia that authoritarian regimes go into a bargain, a social bargain with their population. They promise to grow the economy, and the population relinquishes its liberties or its freedoms for the time being as the economy grows. Right? There's no such bargain. Because if the regime fails to grow the economy, the regime doesn't say, I'm sorry. Uh, we didn't keep our hair for the bargain. And therefore, uh, we're going to leave power now. We stopped growing the economy, and we had this deal where you gave up your civil liberties, and we were in power while we were growing it, but we failed to grow it, so we're sorry, we're leaving now. No, they just repress. They don't leave power. However, they don't need to grow the economy. What they need is cash flow. They need liquidity. The easiest way to get cash flow is when you just pick it up from under the ground. Right? You extract hydrocarbons, you extract diamonds or silver or all sorts of other things, or you hack it. You go into somebody's central bank and you transfer money from their account to your account. Or you counterfeit $100 bills en masse or whatever it might be. Cash flow is absolutely critical to an authoritarian regime. It's also the most significant point of vulnerability. What human rights was in the 70s, 80s, in battling authoritarianism, anti-corruption and going for the jugular on cash flow should, where, should be where policy is today. It's fine to fight for human rights and to campaign for human rights. It's not as effective as it once was. However, anti-corruption, choking the cash flow off, kicking them out of the international banking system, closing down the offshoring, all of those things get them at the jugular. They cannot function. Putin's regime does not bank in North Korea. They bank in Frankfurt. They bank in uh, Vienna. They bank in Liechtenstein. They bank in London. They bank in New York. Those are the places where these regimes are vulnerable, as we saw with the North Korean case and the Iranian case very good sanctions that came out of the Treasury Department. So they need that cash flow. That's the second attribute. The third attribute is control over life chances. Control over life chances sounds uh, easy. But for example, if you can open a business by yourself, well, then you don't have to pay obeisance to the regime. If there's a big private sector, if you're not dependent on the state for employment, or for your kids to go to school, or for yourself to get housing, or for yourself to go on holiday, or whatever it might be, if you're not dependent on the state, if they don't control your life chances, you have a lot more space in a regime like that. So the more there's state control over the economy, state control over education, state control over housing, right, the more empowered these regimes are. This textbook. So their ability to control life chances often takes place in denial of access, right? Kick you out of school, kick you out of your job. And so when you see numbers for state employment, 50% of the economy is state employment, 80% of the economy, you know. And when you see that there aren't as many private universities or private elementary schools, right? Control over life chances. This is critical to authoritarian regimes. Those regimes that don't control life chances are at risk all the time. 
You see with the Communist Party in China right now, it's doing this difficult dance with the private sector. Right? It encouraged the private sector because it needed the wealth, but now it's afraid of the private sector because what is the private sector? It's freedom. It's people's ability to establish businesses, school their children, go on holiday, to live with nobody controlling their life chances. Right? And so you think the Communist Party is now going to do a major liberalization in China and open up or reduce its control over life chances? Obviously, it's going in the other direction, right? Because there's a major threat to the regime from the power that people accumulate in a private sector. Okay. And the fourth piece is what I call the well or the ideological piece. That's where you have to invent stories, you have to invent powerful narratives that speak to people and speak to their fears and speak to their, your, their dependence on you. So the control over life chances gives you a lot. The cash flow is fundamental. The repressive apparatus, you can't do without it. But when push comes to shove, it's the narratives, right? The ability to talk about internal enemies and external enemies. Oh, you know, you got a big package here. They could be the ethnicity that's a minority. They could be Roma or gypsies. They could be Jews. They could be Serbs versus Croats. They could be immigrants. They could be anything, right? So this well, right, you put the bucket down the well and you bring up the stories about the great past that you once had, that they're trying to take away from you. They're trying to prevent you from reclaiming this great past. Who? Well, you, you're external enemies, but there are internal enemies, like a fifth column. And who are they? And you go through, and this ability to tell stories, persuasive stories, is very impressive. Some of these authoritarian regimes are amazing. They're absolutely stunning in their ability to manufacture these stories, which are about fear, insecurity, reclaiming a great past, the prevention of unequal treaties, humiliation by the outside powers, right? It's one after another. They're about grievance, and they're about hopes and dreams that are blocked, but some leader or some group is going to realize these things. So if you put these four pieces together, that's modern authoritarianism. There's a lot of overlap with totalitarianism. Yes, they did all of these things too. But the, the scale is very different. You see, you can be, violence is very costly. So you don't have to have a lot of violence. It's kind of like an accordion. Stalin, like this. Putin, more like this. More selective in the application of the violence. You're violent, but you're not the gigantic violence that you had back then. And so this modern authoritarianism doesn't have to be as xenophobic like an accordion. You can open or close the xenophobia. You need more xenophobia, you open up the sluices a little bit. You get by without it because it's potentially destabilizing. Violence and xenophobia are potentially difficult to manage. So if you can get by without heavy violence and without xenophobia, it's a lot easier to rule. The, the last piece, I said there were four attributes. The last piece is the international system and whether it's conducive or corrosive of, of authoritarianism. This is not something that the authoritarians themselves control. When it's the repressive apparatus and the cash flow and the control over life chances and the stories that they're able to manufacture, they have a lot of control over that. But the international system, they have less control over, right? Meaning, right? Um, where do they bank? Or is there somebody promoting democracy intelligently and vigorously that's threatening them? Right? Is the international system conducive or corrosive of these authoritarian regimes? Well, right now you see that that factor it ceased to work against them, and now they're turning it more and more to their advantage. So that was the big surprise. And that's the thing where the modern authoritarianism that we had is on the offensive, and we're surprised by it. But once again, to refer to the earlier part of the conversation, it's our instruments that are at their disposal that enable them to make the international order less corrosive and maybe even conducive to their rule.
So we need to focus not only or even predominantly on, the, our, on their nastiness, but on our failings, our vulnerabilities, our institutions, the things that we can have under our control to make the international factor less conducive to them and maybe even to undermine some of these attributes that they have that make their regimes sustainable, at least in the short run. Authoritarian regimes are inherently unstable. I see I'm not that bad with time. Authoritarian regimes are inherently unstable for all sorts of reasons. As I pointed out, they're, they're um, inefficient by design because if they get too good at what they do, they have an internal coup. So they make themselves inefficient. They make themselves less good at what they do on purpose. Another inherent instability in authoritarian regimes is the succession mechanism, right? Meaning they don't have legal succession mechanisms. They tend to have uh, uncertainty built in. Is the ruler going to get sick? Is the ruler maybe going to die? Uh, who's going to take over if the ruler uh, gets sick or dies? Our, is our property going to be protected? Is our liberty going to be protected if there's a change? You get ambitious people who worry. Mubarak is 80 years old and has cancer, and his son Gamal is not taken seriously by the rest of the elite. So their property and maybe even their lives are at stake. So the elite is not going to stay with Mubarak all the way. There's an inherent instability in all authoritarian regimes. And when courageous people come out in the streets, maybe the internal elite will say, you know what, this is our opportunity to protect ourselves in the uncertainty of the absence of secure succession mechanisms. Okay. So they're inherently unstable, but however, when they collapse, they can often collapse into themselves again. Another version of the regime comes back from the instability. So we look at the Putin regime and we see, for example, protests in the streets. We see courageous people. And these people are definitely courageous. They're risking their lives, certainly risking their livelihoods, potentially their relatives and their children's livelihoods, often by taking these actions. Right? So we have to understand that courage. At the same time, the dynamic of instability, the threat from the Putin regime comes from within. It comes from other elites looking around and seeing either opportunity that they can rise up or grievance that they've been pushed aside or the uncertainty of the succession mechanism which puts everything they do at risk. So uh, this doesn't mean that the Putin regime is collapsing, uh, but it does mean that there's not only degradation in Russia, but inherent instability in that regime right now as we speak in this room. We're unable to take advantage of that instability because we don't really have a Russia policy, as we discussed at the beginning of the lecture. It would be better to have a Russia policy. So if it's okay, let me conclude with that, the idea of a Russia policy. Right? Um, if you've accepted what I've said already, you, you don't like the facile analogy between the totalitarian Stalin and the current Putin. However, you also understand that Putin is a very significantly nasty regime and is not our friend and not out for our interests, and we have to do something about it. You also understand that that regime has certain capabilities, but a lot of those capabilities are ours. Remember I said the problem was there are a lot of people who are trying to overthrow liberty, they're enemies of liberty, and then there are other people who want to give it away, which is even worse. That's the bigger problem, the much bigger problem. Okay. So what about policy? Where do you go from this? Right. So I'm not making the argument that what I study tells you everything you need to know about the Putin regime, right? I'm not one of these idiot savants who knows something about fascism and therefore says that, you know, Trump is fascism. Look, look what's happening. Look at the rhetoric because I know something about fascism. Yeah, Trump is fascism. You can see, for example, the Gleichschaltung has already taken place. The court system has been taken over by the Nazi party. They've eliminated all other political parties. Uh, there is no more freedom of the press because they closed down all the media institutions. There are several million uh, paramilitaries who march in uniform throughout the streets. Yeah, Trump is fascism. I get that argument, right? So we don't want to make that argument about Putin either, that Putin is communism. 
right? That Putin is Stalinism, that Putin is Stalin. We have to avoid that kind of simplicity. And that doesn't mean we're going to let this regime off the hook. Okay, so how about policy? So where do you start with Russia policy? You don't want to end up where Russia is the center of attention and you're spending all your time talking about it and inviting people uh, to Cato to talk about Russia when you could have had a good lecture about something important, right? You want to have a Russia policy where Russia is not the center of your attention. Meaning, whatever you're doing with Russia, it can't be some gigantic mobilization 24-7. On the other hand, you can't have no Russia policy at all, which is what we currently have. So where's the needle to be thread here on Russia policy? So let me start with a couple of premises, and then I'll offer a, a, a few concrete things, and then we'll pull the plug and see if there are any questions, objections, uh, relief, whatever it might be. The 6 o'clock evening slot is not the easiest slot. I'm sure you've had better, but I got to tell you, I, I do better in the morning slot, the lunchtime slot. Right? The 6 o'clock evening slot is really something. All right. And I'm not even allowed to get off the stage. <laughs> it's the caged animal problem, right? The muskrat who escaped from the zoo. So uh, Versailles Treaty, 1919. Remember the Versailles Treaty? There's a critique of the Versailles Treaty, and it goes like this. The peace was punitive. They accused Germany alone of being responsible for the war. They made Germany pay these giant reparations. It was very unfair. This punitive peace contributed to instability and the rise of Hitler. The Versailles Treaty was wrong. There's another critique, which is less prominent, but also there, which has to do with, oh, no, the treaty was fine. The Germans were really the problem. But the British didn't have the willpower to enforce the treaty. They failed to do their job and be the, the great power to enforce the Versailles Treaty. These are the basic, simple, but these are the basic arguments in the literature on the Versailles Treaty. No one's going to rehabilitate the Versailles Treaty. It's kind of like trying to rehabilitate Chamberlain, for example. <laughs> Invite me back again, which won't happen, but if you did, I'll do that lecture, the rehabilitation of Chamberlain lecture. That's the hardest. That's like the most difficult dive at the Olympics. That's like the triple jackknife dive, the Chamberlain lecture. Okay, so both arguments are wrong about the Versailles Treaty. Why? Because the Versailles Treaty is a complete anomaly. It's the only time, 1919, it's the only time since Bismarck's unification of Germany when both German power and Russian power were simultaneously flat on their back. That hasn't happened, that didn't happen before, and it hasn't happened again. And so you could confidently predict that either one or both of these powers would come back at some point. Remember, the Versailles Treaty was against Germany without Russia. Russia was not invited to participate, and the treaty was imposed on Germany. But you couldn't have a treaty without Germ against Germany without Russia, that would last because it's an anomaly. In fact, in a single generation, both German power and Russian power came back. They were great powers again within a single generation, not one, but both. And so lo and behold, the British spent the entire interwar period trying to revise the Versailles Treaty. That's right, before Hitler came to power in 1933, the British were convening international conferences to get Germany into the post-World War. Remember Genoa in 1922? In fact, they toyed with the idea of even bringing the communists, Soviet Russia, into the international order to stabilize the situation. It didn't work. We all know, and there was World War II. So fast forward to 1991. Here we have German power, in some ways a better, because you get unification of Germany. Right? But we have Russian power flat on its back. And then there's a settlement that's imposed. The settlement doesn't stop in 1991. It moves after 1991. 
And the Russians are absolutely powerless to do anything about this imposition of the settlement in 1991. But they don't like it. Boris Yeltsin is telling the Ukrainians and everybody else who listen that Crimea is Russian territory. This is 1991, as the Soviet Union collapse is becoming more real. He's telling the Ukrainians, how did you get Crimea? Crimea is ours. But he couldn't do anything about it. He could do nothing about it. Has anybody read the just declassified telephone conversations between President Clinton, Clinton and President Yeltsin? They're fantastic. They're amazing. They show you the incomprehension and arrogance on the American side and the pathetic, unbelievably pathetic, bathetic quality on the Russian side. Begging, begging, don't do this, don't do that, but unable to get their way and enforce their will. So lo and behold, the Russians now, they still don't like the 1991 settlement, but they can do something about it, which is something they couldn't do in 1991. This is Versailles Treaty, 1919. This is a version of it. You can argue, you can argue that the treaty was punitive, that Russia was cheated, that Russia should have got a better deal in 91, that we screwed the Russians over, whatever you, uh, however you want to make that argument. Or you can argue that, you know what, the treaty was fine. They lost the Cold War, they were a menace, and we earned our victory. We stood up to that menace. They collapsed from within based in part upon our pressure. And therefore, we need to enforce that 1991 settlement, just like the British should have enforced 1919. Well, we signed a treaty where we were going to protect Ukraine's sovereignty uh, if they gave up their nuclear weapons. We're signatories to that treaty. And they gave up the nuclear weapons. And Russia took the Crimea. And what did we do? It kind of looks like we're the British here. It kind of looks like we're shrinking from the responsibility of enforcing that settlement. So you can either exhort us to send a quarter million troops, your people in this room, or your children or grandchildren, to be stationed to, to evict the Russians from Crimea and eastern Ukraine and to stay there so the Russians don't come back. Or we can recognize that we were bluffing, that we did that when Russia was not a great power anymore, and they are a power again. They're not a power on the level they were before, but they keep collapsing and collapsing and collapsing, and yet they're still there. So we need a relationship with them where we don't have to appease them. We don't have to give in to them. We don't have to surrender to them. But we can't pretend that we're going to do things we're not going to do, like send a quarter million troops to Ukraine to evict the Russians from Ukraine and to stay there permanently. If we're going to do that, fine. But I just don't see the appetite in the United States for that kind of sustained confrontation. Maybe there are other ways to deter Russia, short of that. But ultimately, and there are in my view, but ultimately, we need a relationship with Russia that recognizes that they exist, that they're still there. This doesn't mean rewarding good behavior, but it does mean, excuse me for this word, being realistic about our ability to overturn or uh, what Russia did and or defend that settlement from 1991, which was an anomalous situation when Russia was flat on its back and is no longer in that situation. So my view is we need to uh, um, deter Russia, but we need to deter them in those areas where we're really strong. It doesn't make sense to fight against Russia in those areas where they have an advantage. So in eastern Ukraine, the Russians have a greater advantage than we have. They're right next door. They're going to stay there for a really long time, on the other side of the border, I mean, even if we evict them. And Ukraine itself is a difficult proposition in terms of its stability to necessarily stake the Western order on. Now, people say that Ukraine was cheated, and I agree with that. However, 
Is it Ukraine that we should take the stand against Russia where they have strengths and we have weaknesses? Why can't we take the stand against Russia where we have the strengths and they have the weaknesses and begin to deter some of this behavior? But if you do the deterrence, if you show the strength, you need a negotiation process, you need bargaining, you need diplomacy. Otherwise, the strength of deterrence is wasted. You can't do sanctions for 300 years. You could do them for a certain amount of time, and they're necessary, and I applaud them. What's the next step? Where do we want to get in the relationship? How can we get to a place where they're not incentivized to do spoilation, but they're incentivized to do either less spoilation or even to cooperate? And so we need a deal which revises the 1991 settlement. And you're going to say to me, that's crazy. That's unfair. That's amoral. That's just, I mean, look what the Russians did. And I agree what they did. But the Crimea is going back to Ukraine the day after uh, Texas goes back to Mexico. If you think that it's likely that Texas has gone back to Mexico, then it's likely that Crimea is going back to Ukraine. If you don't think Texas is going back to Mexico, then you need an alternative strategy for defending Ukrainian sovereignty and for deterring Russian aggression. And that has to be where we're strong, which is obviously in that jugular that I was talking about, the finances, the anti-corruption. We have sanctions in place. They're just not very serious. They could be much more serious. We could ratchet up and put tremendous pressure. This would require, as many of you know, that we deal with some of these things like our own offshoring, like our own Fonseca law firm, like many of those vulnerabilities on our side that they're exploiting. And so we have to come to grips with the fact that the problem is here rather than there, in order to deal with the problem that's over there. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much. We will open the floor to questions. We will bring uh, microphones around, so... I wait for them out. to get the mic. Well, no, you point out somebody, and then somebody will bring a mic to them. Yes, sir. I see here, and then I see a woman over there. Go ahead. It's okay. I do a Madeleine Albright, and I stand on the elevated. Uh, usually, she did it behind the podium. Thank you for the great lecture. It was really good. A real quick one. How's the third book coming? Uh, thank you for asking. And do you work for Penguin Publishers? <laughs> Uh, yeah, the third book is a massacre. It is very difficult. It's World War II and the Cold War. And in fact, it doesn't end in 1953 uh, because Stalin, after he's dead, is still the biggest personage in that country. So it is, it's, it's occupying, it's taken over my life and it's still years away. And I hope the interest is still there when the thing actually eventually comes out. But thank you, and um, um, it's a long way from New York, from Penguin offices, to come down here to ask that question, <laughs> but I appreciate it. Yes, we had a woman over there. You mentioned ratcheting up sanctions to cut off the cash flow. Yeah. How would you get Europe on board with increasing sanctions, and is there a fear that overusing sanctions will make the tool ineffective? So you got to make the case that what you're doing is necessary and justified. If you just announce things, if you just do things because you're America and you don't have the kind of consultative process and you don't bring forward the evidence in the public sphere where it can be verified, debated, right? Then, of course, you can't bring anybody on side. Remember, there are a lot of financial interests and business interests at stake, but look what the Germans did. The Germans were willing to sacrifice significant business and financial interests to recalibrate that relationship with Russia. 
right? And that was a big step for them, and they were willing to do it, and they had an internal discussion and a public debate and why it was necessary, and the business community uh, didn't resist fully, and many of them joined voluntarily. So let's take something as simple as the Russian planes that buzz our airplanes or that buzz our ships, right? I believe that we should shoot those planes down. Yeah, honestly, I believe that. How would you go about doing that? Well, you would videotape the incident, and then you would make that videotape of the incident available of the, of the buzzing, available to all the media globally. In fact, you would allow the media on board to videotape if they want. And then you would say, this behavior is inappropriate, and it shouldn't happen. And then, of course, they would do it again. And you would videotape it again. If you didn't have the evidence, you couldn't do anything. But if you videotaped it again, and it showed their aggressive action, and it was a second time, then you could issue a warning. And then you can say, uh, if you do this again, there will be consequences. And then they think you're bluffing, and they buzz you again. And if you have the third buzz videotaped, just like the first two, then you can shoot it down because you videotaped the first two and you've issued the warning and the evidence is there and the Europeans are not going to say that the Americans are making this up. And then you shoot the plane down and what happens? Russia declares war on the United States because their $1.5 trillion economy is going to take on the American economy, right? Their small special forces that seized Crimea, where they already had a military base and where the Ukrainians decided they wouldn't fight, they're going to overrun U.S. assets abroad. I don't think so. They're going to show that they're bluffing by buzzing our planes. But then, after you've shown the evidence and you've taken the deterrent action, then you need the Secretary of, State, uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis to say, this is a terrible incident. We didn't want this to happen. We issued a warning. Now, how do we have a dialogue so that this doesn't happen again and we get to a better place? Because if it happens again, we're going to have to shoot them down again. But we don't want to do that, right? This is how you do deterrence. I mean, where did we lose this skill? So that's the same thing you do in the financial system. First, you reveal the evidence. You begin to close down some of your own vulnerabilities, and then you begin to issue warnings. And you say, you know, if you keep doing what you're doing, we're going to have to remo remove you from the international banking system. We don't want to do that. It would be terrible if we had to do that. We don't want to collapse your economy. That would be not good for you, and maybe we would have to pay a price for that too. But... If we're forced to do that, we'll do it, and we'll do it with our partners, and we'll do it with the evidence. And so this is how, you, this is how you're a superpower. Not by declaring unilateral acts, but by gradations right, of deterrence with evidence revealed to the public so it can be assimilated, verified, and debated. And then a negotiation process. Reagan didn't show strength because he wanted to beat his chest. He wanted to get a bargain where they, we bargain from strength. So we don't want to talk about your re-education archipelago in Uyghurstan. Really, we don't want to do that. But you know, if you keep stealing our technology, we're going to have to form a Uyghur government in exile. I'm so sorry we have to do that. I'm so sorry we're going to have to defend Taiwan with more significant weapon systems. And we don't want to do that. We don't want a war. But if you're going to force us to do this, we're going to create governments in exile. We're going to go on a massive anti-corruption campaign because where's the Chinese money? We're going to cut you off from this and cut you off from that. We're going to evict your students from the universities. We don't want to do this. That's terrible. We're an open society. We want international exchange. So here's what you have to do 
for that not to happen. And here's the dialogue we're going to have so that we get to that better place. Right? This is foreign policy 101. Deterrence from strength, calibrated so as not to escalate beyond your control, combined with diplomacy, negotiation skills, and a sense of where you're going to get the relationship to go. You can't get everything in a negotiation. So with Putin, there are some things we're going to have to concede. And Crimea is one of those things. But you got to extract the price. What's the price? Well, you give them 25 years process of recognition of Crimea. And it depends on their behavior elsewhere. And if at the end of the 25-year process or whatever you can get, the 15-year process, if their behavior has been acceptable to you, then you can formally internationally recognize. But they have to pay compensation for it. They can't just have it for free. And moreover, they have to evacuate from eastern Ukraine, from Abkhazia and Ossetia, from that other trash can stand, Transnistria. They got to get out. And if they go back in, then we, during that long period of time, then we don't have the formal process of, it's got to be gradation so that their behavior is incentivized in a certain direction. So we need a bargain over the 91 settlement, and we need to use those instruments which are at our command, but we need to have a sense that the relationship is going to go somewhere where we're going to make some concessions as well as extract major concessions from them. You know, we have to do diplomacy again. For example, we'll need a State Department again. Yes. Okay, I think this gentleman over there and then this one in the front. Our, our leadership is going to pull the plug on this when uh, we'll put, stick a fork in it when it's done. Thank you. Yeah. So basically, Russian patriots, so-called patriots, pro-Putin Russians say that the West would like to see Russia collapsed, but it will never do this because Russia is so strong and powerful and, and, and proud and so on and so on. The <clears throat> opponents of Putin say that actually the West can very easily bring Russia on its knee. There are tools like, for example, I can go on and on about what it can do. Yeah. But the question is, they say that United States, the West and the United States specifically would not like to see Russia to collapse because it would be too heavy price for the West itself. What do you think about it? Thank yeah, so we could potentially try to collapse Russia, and then we could have China on the border with Hungary. You like that idea? I don't like that idea. You know, I'm not Bismarck. I don't have that kind of skill, right? But uh, there's balance of power. There's a world out there, and Russia is part of our world. In addition, we could collapse Russia, and we could get Russia back. This is the thing about... Uh, we. If you've ever seen the Westerns, those Hollywood movies where there were white hats and black hats, the white hats are the reformers. The black hats are the people we call the anti-reform, the reactionaries. And so we have white hats in Iran, we have white hats in Russia, we have white hats everywhere where we're looking. Sometimes we don't see that the white hat and the black hat is actually a stripe down the middle and it goes around and it's white and it's black and it's white anyway. So we got, these, we got this idea that we could do better. We could get a Gorbachev-type guy back. We could get a Yeltsin back, maybe. We could get a reformer back. It's possible. Tell me right now what the historical popularity is of all those pro-Western Russian reformers are, historical figures, as opposed to the historical popularity of the anti-Western uh, leaders of that country. The numbers don't look very good, do they? Uh, Yeltsin and Gorbachev, single digits. In Gorbachev's case, under 1%. Stalin, good numbers. Really big numbers he puts up on the board still today. So the white hat, black hat thing, it's not a stable proposition, necessarily. You got to take the world as it is. Collapsing Russia, OK, maybe we could try. And if we succeeded, we would get Russia again. And if we succeeded too much, we would get China expanded in Greater Eurasia, potentially. 
I watch right now you see the China Russia contest for Iran. We think everything's about us. China and Russia are going toe to toe over Iran. Why does Russia support Iran and Syria? Why does Russia support the Iranian militias elsewhere? Because if Russia turns on Iran, Iran becomes a satellite of China, potentially. They lose Iran fully to China. And China just keeps eating Russia's lunch across Eurasia. So this is how we have to think about We have to live up to our values at home. We have to have restraints on executive power at home. We have to have an impartial professional judiciary. We got to have a parliament, whether we like the way it functions or not. If you do away with the Congress, it's a lot worse than if you see the Congress in its current state, right? So we got things where we got to live up to our values and support our institutions at home. And then we got to live with the world in a way that uh, advances American values without the kind of overextension backfiring that we have. So Samuel Huntington, what did he say? Um, is Huntington okay in this building? <laughs> Sam Huntington said, we've done it exactly wrong. We've done crazy diversity at home and universalism abroad. One worldism abroad, one American system imposed on everybody. And at home, we've hyphenated like crazy. And Huntington says, no, it's universalism at home. It's civic Americanism, civic citizenship, civic nation at home, and it's recognition of diversity abroad to deal with the world as it is. So that lesson, that hunting, it's an eternal lesson, right? That's, the, that's kind of where we got to get to while also still living up to our values. It's not easy what I'm saying, right? We're a democracy. Every foreign policy has to be rooted in the majority in the people, right? You can't have a foreign policy that works at Cato or that works at, at Heritage or that works at Brookings. It's got to work in America. It's got to work in electoral politics. It's got to work in a democratic setting. So you can get up here and make a brilliant speech about restraint. I've made those speeches not brilliant about restraint. But how do you do restraint rooted in the American populace? The American populace gets overextension. They bought into that. The American populace gets abdication. That's where we are now. Between overextension and abdication, the smart policy is restraint. It's universalism at home, recognition of difference abroad. But how do you root that in a democratic majority? How do you tell stories about that so that's successful? How do you get that to work in an electoral democracy? We're very far from having that kind of foreign policy. Hi. So I'm wondering, um, do you think that competitive authoritarian regimes can form uh, values-based alliances, or are these regimes based too much in self-interest to have meaningful, lasting partnerships? And as a uh, little subclause on that question, could you define illiberalism? So illiberalism is anti-liberal in the 19th century constitutional order sense. Not democracy necessarily, but the, the old liberal, which has been confused with the modern liberal. So illiberal is anti-system. We have people today who are anti-system in the American public sphere. They are illiberal in their thoughts, in what they say should happen, in their uh, critique of the judiciary, the press, the Congress, whatever it might be, right? However, we have liberal institutions that constrain them. The problem is when you don't have the institutions that constrain the illiberal behavior. Or you undermine, you undercut, you do away with the liberal institutions, right? The rhetoric is problematic. It matters. But it's the deinstitutionalization of a liberal order that's the real problem. And authoritarianism, right, is fundamentally illiberal. It's not anti-democratic always. We're now learning that there is a democratic dimension potentially to illiberalism. Just as we democratize liberalism over a long struggle, over a long period of time, expanded the category of citizenship. Can authoritarian regimes, illiberal regimes, have a kind of a common value alliance across the world? Uh, can democracies do that? 
We think democracies can do that. I'm not sure that our understanding of common values and alliances is fully in line with historical uh, experience. Uh, it's possible to a limited extent on the democratic side. It's possible to an even less, even more limited extent on the authoritarian side, right? There's no honor among thieves. One of the things about alliances is that they're based on common interests and they're based on trust. These regimes have no trust within themselves, right? They don't like each other, they fear each other domestically, they're full of mistrust. And then in dealing with so-called partners, they don't necessarily have a lot of trust. Stalin didn't trust Hitler. That's ridiculous, right? And they didn't have an alliance anyway, they had a non-aggression pact. But so there's a limited ability based on common values because they're defending against the liberal order. And so there's the commonality. But if they defeat the liberal order, they go after each other. And even before they've defeated the liberal order, they're going after each other. So the common interests are shallow. They're there, but they're shallow. So I don't think we have to worry about that. Let's put it this way. If we're America, we don't have much to worry about at all. Our institutions are phenomenal. Our economy is incredible. Our innovative culture, our university system, it doesn't look like, in reality, what it looks like on cable TV. It's got neuroscience, it's got AI, and it's got a couple of professors talking about Marxism or whatever, or postmodernism, right? And the students aren't taking those classes, are they? They're not in those classes. They're not in those majors, right? So we've got attributes and advantages that are breathtaking. There's never been a power like this, and it's difficult to ruin this thing. We've seen how difficult it is to ruin it because there's a lot of people trying like the Dickens to bring us down. We're the only thing that can bring us down. Thankfully, that's not an easy proposition, and thankfully, we have institutions like Cato to remind us that we have to defend this instead of trying to bring it down. Thank you for your attention.